This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring you different voices from the CEA team. But we start the podcast with the main event, my discussion with Gianna Manis, the president and CEO of Calgary-based NMAX Corporation. So, Gianna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Francis. Good to be here. I thought I'd start with a question that I've asked a lot of the other folks um, uh, on the podcast, and that is, what book are you reading? Before we get into the, the meaty stuff... Well, I'm one that tends to read uh, multiple books at one time. Okay. So I am reading a couple of books right now from a business leadership perspective. I'm reading a book called The Bellwether Effect. And it's about how do we motivate people uh, today. So more to follow on that. I'm just getting started. And on a personal perspective, I have just started also reading uh, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Oh, wow. Um, when we did a, the podcast with, uh, with Karen Hutt, she had just finished reading uh, or Michelle Obama's book, which she she highly recommended to others. So you're already there. Well, good. She's ahead of me. There so. you go. <laughs> is is there an essential book that you think because um, the podcast is about the future it, uh, that you think people should be should read if they're if they want to get a sense of what the future may look like for for our industry? One of the books that I read, it's actually been around for a while, and it's it's not so much about the specifics of the book, but it's a book called Jump the Curve. Jump the Curve. Jump the Curve. And it was by a futurist. And again, it's it's a little dated now, but the point isn't so much about the specific technologies that he's talking about. But the premise of the book is that we live in exponential times. Mm -hmm. And for industries, particularly ours in electricity, where you're looking at disruption, we're being disrupted by exponential forces. Right. And the book is really about that. How do you... Pay, what do you? What should you be paying attention to, mm -hmm. in terms of trends? When you're at a point in time where it might not look like it's that big a deal of a deal, mm -hmm. you know, it, but it's doubling in terms of penetration. I think of electric vehicles, for example. Right. We're still on that part of the curve where there are many people who could look around and say. Right. Oh yes, it's growing, but it's not really all that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Renewables are growing, or solar is growing, but it's it's still not that big. Mm -hmm. But look at how they're growing. They're right. beginning to grow exponentially. Right. And if you're not careful, you turn around, and once they're up that curve and they're doubling and continuing to double, once it's jumped that curve, if you didn't pay attention to it, it's too late. Right. So the whole concept of that book is something that I use, that I talk about at NMAX, but we talk about exponential growth. Mm -hmm. And so Jump the Curve is a book that really brings that home. That's great. We, we had a, an electrification summit earlier this week, uh, and, and one of the charts they showed was uh, EV adoption in Canada, which is still relatively low. And I think the last five years, it was... A, essentially doubling. It was going from 8,000 to 16,000 to 36,000 to 48,000 to, to, exactly. to 80,000 in terms of the number of cars on the And road. oftentimes, the prices 
being cut in half. Yeah, as, as and, not absolutely. quite Moore's Law. Not, but not quite Moore's Law, but, but, but where does that apply? Yeah. One of the, if I can just keep on that thread for a minute, one of the best analogies, uh, his name is Jack Aldrich, who wrote this book, mm -hmm. and one of the best analogies is what he calls the lily pond analogy. Okay. And the, the story is, if you imagine a lily pond, and on day one of a month, say there's 30 days in the month, and on day one there's one uh, lily pad in this pond. Mm -hmm. But that lily pad, the number of lily pads double uh, every day. Right. 20 days into the month, what percentage of the pond would you imagine is covered in lily pads? And many people think linearly, and people will do the math, and they'll say, well, maybe 67%, or some will think, well, 20%. Mm -hmm. But 20 days into an exponential curve, 20 days out of 30 in, it's 0.1% of the pond is covered with lily pads on day 20. But by day 30, it's 100%. Right. Yeah. Right. That's the effect of yeah. exponential growth. Right. And so at NMAX... We talk about that lily pad analogy and are we living in it and what technologies are we seeing that happen? Adoption of things like electric vehicles, mm -hmm. are we seeing that? And that's the power of exponential. Mm -hmm. And I think for those of us looking ahead in our industry, we ought to be paying very, very close attention to that. Not linear. Yeah. Not linear. Well, okay, let's, then let's, let's jump into the future for, uh, for, 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 uh, for now and talk a little bit about your... Um, with a, uh, an integrated company, your, your company's now in generation, transmission, in distribution, you're in the marketing side of things. How big uh, a change is the future going to be for, for, for integrated companies like yours in the future? And what, are the, what do you see as really the sort of the, the big, big, big changes that you're, you're expecting as you look down, the, the, uh, the, the, look down into the future? I think the changes are going to come in many places. Uh, I think, but where we're most focused, and I think the, the where we'll see the effect first mm -hmm. is the concept around the generation of electricity. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, historically, and, and in fact, NMAX was very much involved in the big development of big central generation. Right. Uh, in that game, it's economies of scale. Mm -hmm. You build it bigger on a per unit basis, it's cheaper to produce. And so you have big central generation and then transmission to move the electricity. But distributed technologies and distributed energy is a trend that I think is here to stay. Mm -hmm. I think back to the prior conversation yeah. we just had about exponential growth. And so I, I think for us, the impact on central generation, the size that we would continue to build, mm -hmm. I think it's less about the big giant and more about the small distributed. Right. And when you marry that small distributed energy on the ends of our system, mm -hmm. our customers have the potential to become our competitors. Yes. Yeah. And at the same time, the investment in the distribution grid has to change dramatically. How do we invest in a distribution grid to be able to have this type of two-way flow that we're talking about mm -hmm. or to enable uh, electricity generation at the end of it, not just at the beginning of mm -hmm. these systems. So I see change across all mm -hmm. of it, um, but I think the smaller, uh, the smaller distributed is the direction that we're going as Nmax. But I think that's really the biggest change that we're going to see. Right. Would we potentially be in a place in the future where 
the interests of your generation business uh, conflict in a significant way with the interests of your of your distribution business? Um, is your distribution business going to be looking to work with distributed energy uh, solutions on the one hand, but potentially cannibalizing your generation business? I think that's a I think that's a real possibility in our mm -hmm. industry, particularly for integrated companies. Mm -hmm. uh, I, but I think. For companies like us that have all of those components, we need what at NMAX we talk about, we need to be on the forefront of enabling this. This change and the, the, the distributed energy and things being at the customer premise or that disruption, that is going to happen whether we support it or not. And we can't hold that back, nor should we. And I think that companies like NMAX and others who are more integrated, who have that full scope, I, I think we need to look to embrace it. And mm -hmm. I, I think we need to look to enable it. And even if that means that it affects another part of our business, if we don't help enable, then we will become the victim of it one mm -hmm. way or the other. Right. So I think we should get ahead of it, even if that means that the, the reality is going forward, our business has to change, our business model should change. The important thing to remember is this isn't going to happen overnight mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. uh, as I look ahead, I, the need for big, large-scale generation does not evaporate tomorrow. The right. value of large central generation that's very efficient, that does not go away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I'm focused, however, on as we look towards that future, where does our future dollars go? Maybe next time we don't build the plant as big. Maybe mm -hmm. we still build central, but mm -hmm. maybe a lot smaller, right. a little more scalable investments. And there's a little bit of a trade-off on that efficiency um, because it's not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. So how do you start to make that shift today and, and actually enable and help? And mm -hmm. we cannot focus as an industry on what we stand to lose or what we're trying to prevent. I think we have to focus on what, what can we enable mm -hmm. or someone else will come and do it for us. Mm -hmm. And so those, the, someone else is going to come and do it for us. Or do it to us. Yeah, yeah. Right? They're, they're already starting to appear, right? I mean, They are. We're, we're effectively seeing increasing competition behind the meter and new players in the marketplace. And so how do you, how do you shift the thinking within the company to be able to uh, understand and, and, and meet that new competitive reality? Well, well, NMAX being today in Alberta, we have been in a competitive environment when it came to our relationship with our customers now for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we've been, we've, we've had to really earn that, that customer, uh, but, but not always the case and we know that. So how do we, what do we change inside? It's, it's a common thing. It's easy to talk about the customer and we need to support the customer. And I just talk about it as we have to think a lot more outside in than inside out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's more important for us to understand what our customers value, what or what value we create and help them and enable them rather than what we would like them to do. Mm -hmm. And for our industry, we, we've got a long history where for many years, we are, a, we are still a back-of-mind type of um, product. Right. I think the fact that people don't think about us too much is a compliment to this industry. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have done what we've done Absolutely. all these decades yep. reasonably and affordably um, and very reliably, 
the fact that people don't think about us much is a testament to how well we've done things. And, mm -hmm. and we have to try to figure out how do we still support customers without, well, but from a different perspective now. We still, mm -hmm. we, we need to engage with them differently and uh, think about what they value even if they don't want to engage with us all that much. Right. Um, right. It's less about what we want them to think about us mm -hmm. and it's more about how are we there in ways that they value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Easier said than done. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but what we do now inside NMAX, first of all, long ago we stopped calling them rate payers. They are <laughs> customers. I think if you're still calling them rate payers, you need to get rid of that that language. It right. starts with how do you call them? What do you call them? They're our yeah. customers. Yeah. Um, they're our partners in, mm -hmm. in many cases. And and then you go from the lens that we look at, look at everything through is how does this affect them? Mm -hmm. How do they value it? And are we uh, trying to do things that we think they value? Are we really listening? Right. So we ask a lot more questions of our customers, and I would say we listen better than we ever have. So that, that sounds like a pretty significant culture shift for a company, for any company in, in, in this sector, given the, you know, the, where, this, um, where this industry came from. How do you, how do you achieve that kind of a a really significant culture change in, inside the company. How have, you, have you been able to tackle that one? Well, it's still a work in progress. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh -huh. I, th I think how we, t we, t we tackle it in a variety of ways. One that I th I'd like to just mention here because I think most utilities do this is we are naturally part of the fabric of these communities mm -hmm. and we have long-standing histories of investing in our communities uh, of, in, a, in a variety of ways, volunteerism and things like that. Right. And building on that legacy and turning it to the customer and the business side mm -hmm. is a great place to start. We're already doing it, but we often did it almost separately from the business equation. Oh, we, yeah. think okay. about, we think about how we give back in our community, but we don't necessarily convert that to our customer engagement in the past. Okay. Well, now we're starting to stitch those together because they're one and the same. Right. And the reason I mentioned that is um, I think we have a lot to build on. People do trust us mm -hmm. as well, and we have to build on that. But other things that we do inside the company, like many change initiatives, mm -hmm. we look for inside the company the small successes and try to highlight them. We look for the champions in right. the company that really see that value, and we put them in positions of leadership mm -hmm. around these. And when we don't always get it quite right, we acknowledge it and we correct it mm -hmm. and we move on. So um, I, I guess I would say we have to be a learning culture mm -hmm. and we have to be prepared not only to do things differently, but to let go of the way we used to do them and you know, take every moment we can to celebrate success or yeah. to learn from a mistake. Yeah. Well, uh, um, on, on culture change and leadership, um, I think that kind of um, naturally leads me to to, uh, to want to ask a little bit about um, NMAX and uh, and diversity at NMAX uh, under under your leadership. Um, your your leadership team has has kind of changed visibly uh, since your arrival, and it starts to look increasingly like the society and the customers that you you serve. How how much of a challenge has that been to to, to instill those kinds of changes in the company? 
Well, certainly, I think when it comes to gender, that's the visible one you're, you're speaking of in particular. Yeah. Uh, we have four of 11 of our board members on NMAX that are female. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have, well, 60% of my executive team yeah. is female. Yeah. Um, it, so how, how did we achieve that? First of all, we did not set... Uh, particular quotas mm -hmm. or goals that was never the, the point I have always just said we're gonna raise the bar raise the bar mm -hmm. and make sure we have quality and we have qualified people when I had an opportunity to make some changes on the executive team and because we've been changing our strategy to reflect these trends that we've talked about mm -hmm. earlier sure. um, there's been a need to to go and find and bring some some different leadership into the company that is fit for the new realities and the changes yep. that we're doing. So when I've had an opportunity to do that, one of the things that I particularly looked for that I think is critical to everything we've already talked about mm -hmm. is how do you adapt and change was the criteria that I used in terms of particularly executive recruitment or mm -hmm. senior leader recruitment I would say was a much broader set of criteria than maybe we had used in the past or traditional okay. set. I was looking for executives that had other industry experience. Mm -hmm. I was looking for uh, executives and leaders that um, had a variety of experiences in their career, mm -hmm. had they demonstrated the ability to learn strong leadership, but strong, strong ability to just demonstrate how to put in new situations mm -hmm. and, and to adapt. When I opened up that criteria set, mm -hmm. the diversity of candidates, both in gender and otherwise, right. they're there. Yeah. The talent is out there. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is companies that struggle to get that mm -hmm. type of uh, diversity don't start with the candidate pool and say they're not out there. Mm -hmm. Look within yourself mm -hmm. and first start and look at your criteria. Right. If you're using traditional criteria, you're going to get traditional candidates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I got the best talent for these respective roles because the talent pool's out there. You just have to look a little bit differently. And I would say that my personal experience in this industry and the career that I've had where I, while I've been in the energy industry my whole career, gas and then electricity, I had leaders that were willing to look at the totality of what I personally would bring into a role, even if my traditional experience was different. Right. And they gave me opportunities to grow through my career. Mm -hmm. And that's effectively what I'm doing here, is expanding the criteria mm -hmm. set. And I can promise you the talent's out there. Mm -hmm. One of the other ways that you've been challenging people to think differently, and that came up in, in your talk uh, earlier today about price, uh, and the example you used about the price of apples. Can you can you maybe just expand on that for the for the for the, the listeners to the, in the podcast? Yes, the story is you know whether it's apples, we've used bananas. Um, mm -hmm. When we all go to the grocery store and we're looking to to say buy buy apples. We look and see what's the cost of that apple, mm -hmm. and we make a decision whether or not we can afford, you know, is it the $1.99 a pound or right. the $2.99, based on what our preferences are. Mm -hmm. But we look at the total cost of the apple. Electricity, I'm finding, is very unique because at while we know most customers look at the bottom line bill, what do they pay? Mm. 
We also provide a lot of detail and a lot of information. And in the interest of trying to convey some transparency there, there's a lot of things that are kind of a lot of noise. There's a mm -hmm. lot of things within that total number. Uh, whether it's some of it's the cost in, in the analogy, the cost of the apple itself, right? Right. Yeah. But probably here in Canada, most of the cost of that apple is the cost to for to transport to that transport. apple to us. Absolutely. And we're finding an interesting thing happening in Alberta, where people are the cost of electricity is very low, mm -hmm. but or is the smaller proportion of the bill. The bigger portion of the bill is the delivery of that electricity, and right. also some of the taxes that are put onto that bill that have nothing to do with the electricity company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're finding a fair bit of reaction by people upset that their cost of electricity is low, but the delivery is so high. Right. And they're focused on the fact that this, as if it's not a real cost. And mm -hmm. I just find it a very interesting analogy that unless you actually pay for the delivery, mm -hmm. the electricity does not get to your home. Mm -hmm. But we live sort of in interesting times where people want a lot of information. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that information causes confusion. It causes misunderstanding. And we've got to do a better job of really explaining and working about working with what's the total cost. Mm -hmm. It's not about whether it's you know the cost of the apple to grow the apple or the apple to get the apple. At the end gotcha. of the day, you've got to get the apple on the shelf and yeah. you want to take it home. And so we've—it's a—it's an interesting sort of dynamic, and we're trying to work with how do we communicate in a mm -hmm. way, again, that makes sense to people. Back to thinking about the customers. Right. Uh, we know all those details. Yeah. Is it really important? Yeah. Uh, do really people really care? Um, it confuses. It introduces a level of mm -hmm. confusion and frustration. Right. When the customers, just looking for. So the, 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 the core values. Exactly. Yeah, they're looking for light, they're looking for heat, they're looking for... Reliability. Reliability and, and in a safe manner. Yeah. On and on and on. There's, a, there's a balance in here about having enough transparency so people understand what they're paying for. Yeah. But also meeting them with what, what's important to them. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure we've got that exactly right. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, we've got regulation, there's a lot of rules that tell mm -hmm. us what has to be on the bill. I, th I think if we're really going to think about customers, we can, as, a, as an industry working with our regulators, I can't help but think there's a better way to communicate the cost of that electricity and also uh, the value mm -hmm. of that electricity. We've right. got some work to do yeah. on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you're a, a former member of the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council. You spent uh, a little bit of time on there. So you had an opportunity to work with executives from across North America on a range of issues, but notably cybersecurity. And I wanted to touch on cybersecurity, of course. Of course. Because you and I talk about it a lot. Yes. Um, how confident are you now that you've kind of had a, uh, you know, spent a couple of years at ESCC, uh, how confident are you that, that we will, as an industry, be able to be able to meet um, the, uh, the, uh, the increasing threat uh, that we see in, in cyberspace. Has it made you more confident or now are you, because you've seen more of the threat information, does it no longer give you the ability to sleep at night? Well, you know, like many things, sometimes when you can see behind the curtain mm. and you know what's really going on, on the one hand, it, it could give me the tendency to sleep less. Mm. I mean, when the more aware I am as to the details of the threats, the validity of the threats, 
the constantly changing environment on the thread. If I were a glass half empty type of person, mm -hmm. these things would scare me more today than mm -hmm. ever, uh, and I would sleep less today than ever. Right. At the same time, though, to go to the other side of that glass half full side, and, and what I have also, so my awareness and knowledge has disarmed me and has worried me. But at the same time, being able to be at the table mm -hmm. for the last number of years across, across the border, working here in Canada, the U.S., and seeing the industry, knowing all of the threats and what's been happening and yeah. the real stories there, mm -hmm. and then seeing how the industry is preparing, adjusting, adapting, and, and how, but how seriously the industry is taking this helps me sleep. I mean, yeah. it, I'm equally armed with the knowledge that we are, I think as a, when I look across, I don't know what other industry sectors are doing, but I think we're doing so much. And I think, and candidly, we're doing more than I ever imagined we would mm. under this. Mm -hmm. The collaboration, the sharing of information, the the working together between government and industry, it's reaching a level of uh, focus that even you know five years ago, I don't think we would have achieved. So I think I'm very encouraged by the industry coming together and the way that it has and the, the work, it's good work. That being said, I think cyber is one of these areas, it's like safety. Mm -hmm. uh, you never rest right. because the minute we get complacent or think that we have this, then you know if we're complacent or arrogant in any way about this, the fact is it's never a job done. Mm -hmm. The escalation of the threats, the sophistication, and it, it's we have to be ever vigilant and ever increasingly vigilant. So you just you just don't rest on it. Mm -hmm. But I'm really really impressed with the work. The last thing I would say on this, and it's what I often say, I'm asked by members of the public who aren't in our industry mm -hmm. about this a lot, and I want to assure them that we're doing everything that we can. Right. And even with that, we have to recognize that. We try to stay one step ahead, but even trying to stay at par is, is a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a race. It's a constant race. The other thing that I think is really important here to, to recognize is it's not about anymore just prevention. Mm -hmm. you know, a few years ago, we talked about firewalls and preventing. Mm -hmm. Prevention is very important, but our lines of defense, as you know, Francis, yeah. are multiple now. We yeah. have increasingly focused on... Yes, prevention and, and ever-increasing prevention, but that's not sufficient. Yeah. And I would say if anything that we've learned and Im implemented in the next the last few years, it's detection, containment, mm -hmm. restoration. Mm -hmm. uh, but that detection and containment, so it doesn't, when it does, when somebody does get through our yeah. defenses, our yeah. first line of defense, there are multiple lines of defense, yeah, defense to keep, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so to keep the effect from being significant, mm -hmm. That's where we're spending a lot of time, and I think that's really very, very important. So we're not relying just on one tool. Mm -hmm. We've expanded the toolkit significantly, and so I'm very encouraged. And I do sleep okay at night for yeah. this. But I, you know, you never, we can never turn our back on this at all. It's real. Second to last question. 
and it's a question that somebody asked you at the conference today. Um, how do you convince uh, people to uh, want to work in this industry that's perhaps seen as old and, and, and stayed um, when uh, you know they, they have the option of going to work in Silicon Valley and I believe the person said in, in places where they have foosball tables and 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 uh, and a different and a different culture your your response well first of all Inmax has foosball tables <laughs> uh, but I know that alone is not enough it's a culture yeah. uh, I, I love that question, and as I, I said in, in the conference earlier today, increasingly we are competing in the skill set that we need in this industry. We are competing head to head with the Amazons and the Googles. Mm -hmm. And what I, the message I like to send out, and I go and I speak to university students and others, is number one, this is an amazingly exciting time to be in this industry. If you ask a group of university students, to name technology companies. Right. I can promise you they don't name an electricity company, but the message that I'm trying to get out there is that electricity companies and utilities, we are technology companies. Mm -hmm. We were one of the first technology mm -hmm. companies. We are some of the largest deployers of technology that are, that are around. We've been deploying technology for 100 years. And don't buy into this stereotype or this historical view that we are stodgy or mm -hmm. we move slow. We're dynamic, we're forward-thinking, we're innovating, we're, we're deployers of technology. We're just, we tend to be fairly modest about it. Mm -hmm. We tend to be quiet about it. Um, but if you want to come to an industry that is undergoing huge change, that has great opportunity, that is a technology company, we're technology companies, yeah. and if you want to be part of something that makes a difference, you want to come to work for an electricity company. Imagine the world without us. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be part of something that makes a difference every day and you want to be in the technology space, well, then you've got a great career. Right. And, and that, that's my pitch whenever I get an opportunity. And yes, and we can also have foosball tables, by the way. <laughs> Terrific. Okay, uh, final question. Yes. Um, uh, when, uh, when you start your day, where do you turn to first for, uh, for uh, critical information so that you're, you're up to speed and, and, uh, and ready to face the world at NMAX? Well, I like, I'm a scanner. Probably, I'm, I'm equally a good flipping flipping the channel kind of person on the on the television set. One of the things I've recently, I, I, two things that I do. One is I have a uh, an app on my phone and on my iPad that allows me to put in about 45 to 50 topics that mm -hmm. I'm interested in, and it's everything from some personal health and well-beings to renewable energy, new technology, all so many of the things we've talked about mm -hmm. here, Canada, Alberta, mm -hmm. yeah. and you know, the top, my topic range is quite large, and once I've put that in, it collates information for me, and several times a day, I just fl literally flip through it, and I spend a few minutes just reading the headlines, and, and then I tag things that I want to go back to later mm -hmm. when I have a little more time and read in depth or look into, mm -hmm. and so for me, that broad scan yeah. is, and then going in depth on the detail, that's how I kind of start my day, is uh, I, I start my day thinking broad, what's happening in the world, all the way down to some of the things that are happening in my home in, in Calgary. So mm -hmm. that's how I do it, and, and that's how the, I keep what's up. what's the app? It's called Flipboard. Flipboard, there it is. There it is, on yours, Flipboard. Uh, do you do the same it. thing? Absolutely, yeah. And so it, it just gives me a quick scan. Yep. And then I go back later. And what I also do locally, and, and this works, I appreciate there's, there's pros and cons of this one, but is Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, when, 
when we had a flood in 2013 in Calgary, that was when Twitter wasn't as big as it is now, but Twitter was so valuable for me. I could, again, just quickly look through mm-hmm. the local tweets. Mm-hmm. And it gives me a bit of a pulse of mm-hmm. what's going on in the community. And so for that local news in particular, I'll just flip through, particularly around what are people saying about Inmax today? Yeah. And just reading, it's not always complimentary. And oftentimes it's very colorful. Uh but it's just a bit of a scan. It's it's mm-hmm. a it's a pulse check, if you will, at least for social media. And uh, so I, I also use that from time to time, and particularly when we've had crisis or outages. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best sources of mm-hmm. information to really understand what people are saying around around the, about the company because they're saying it whether you're listening yep. or not. That just gives you an opportunity to listen. Yeah, yeah. and okay. and it, it gives me some some insight. It's a good early an early warning detector of what what's going on. Great. Gianna, thank you very much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. This is fun. Michael Powell, Government Relations Director here at CEA, once again joins me to talk about news that caught his eye. So what's in the news feed, Michael? We're heading to the West Coast uh, this week, looking at uh, a story in Cal- something out of California and something out of Saanich. We'll start with Saanich up here in Canada, mm-hmm. where councillors are starting to ask for new build homes to be built solar ready. So not necessarily to have solar cells on them, but to be built uh, for the capacity to add them in the future. So the plan is all new homes? Well, that would be uh, the long-term goal, but I, I gather it's increasingly the practice in Saanich where there is a, a fair amount of, of solar rolled out already. The uh, the city or the municipality, I should say, has a, a medium-term goal of making taking themselves to be fully renewable. And one of the challenges with that, as anywhere with built form, is to make sure that you can actually add things relatively inexpensively. Mm-hmm. That when you're building a house, it's easy enough to have fittings and the structure to add photovoltaic cells later, but to retrofit something can be quite expensive. So uh, making it part of the code, which might become an option in BC sooner rather than later, right. is uh, the easiest way of doing that. So it makes retrofit easy, simple. Well, I'm not sure that's the case for anyone that's gone through a renovation, but uh, it reduces the costs anyway. All right. Uh, we'll head to California next, which, uh, again, with the same idea of electrification, uh, the Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District is starting a pilot with electric vehicles for the U.S. Postal Service. So each will be able to do about 85 miles and be re- recharged in eight hours. But I think speaks to where the real opportunity for early electrification of transportation is, which is not necessarily individual people's cars, fleets. But, but for fleets, fleets, which is where the upfront costs of electric vehicles, uh, when factored into the amount of distance that you know is pretty predictable for uh, traveling, mm-hmm. that are end up in the same place each night, offer long-term savings and costs, while also uh, producing uh, GHGs from it. And these are often vehicles, as you say, that, that don't travel a great deal, but currently in, in the, the uh, internal combustion engines tend to be left running uh, all day. Which may be the case. If you think yeah. about even Canada Post vehicles as an example, obviously yep. our situation is different. The model for Canada Post would have a single letter carrier driving and dropping some parcels off and then parking his vehicle or her vehicle in a bunch of places, Mm -hmm. but then walking around a short distance. The actual number of kilometers traveled each day might not be very high. Mm -hmm. Right. Michael, thanks for that. But before you sign off, I want to ask you a question that I ask guests of the featured discussions here on the podcast. 
and that is, what book are you reading? Well, the the children's books aside, the books <laughs> that uh, I've most recently read is called The Man from the Train, which is a book by Bill James. He's most famous for being the uh, prominent sabermetrician that uh, rethought how we did baseball. But he took a look at, uh, he was a true crime as well, apparently, mm -hmm. but there was a series of seemingly related murders mm -hmm. in the United States through the early part of the 20th century. And he uses uh, different newsprint newspaper articles from mm -hmm. different places to connect them and makes a case that there was basically a serial killer that traveled the united states hopping off the train and torching a house and then moving on to the next place the really interesting thing with all of this is that if you lived at the time it would have been very difficult to track some of these things mm -hmm. because you would have had your newspaper in your town right. that would have covered it but something even just over the state line or two years earlier would have been impossible to search but today it's uh, all online and all keyword searchable. And him and his daughter uh, have done a, a pretty interesting look at, at how the, these things may have been connected and how we can access information and, and collate it in a way that wouldn't have been possible for people that were living there at the time. Sounds cool. What's it called again? The Man from the Train. The Man from the Train. Great. Thanks, Michael. Uh, and I look forward to the news and views that you're going to bring to the, the podcast next time. Daniel Gent, the Director of Analytics. The core programs in analytics are the uh, Equipment Reliability Information System Program for Generation, uh, Equipment Reliability for Transmission, and the Bulk Electricity System Program for Transmission, and the Service Continuity Committee that looks at reliability for distribution performance. So on the generation side, last year uh, we drafted this uh, amazing paper in partnership with Seymour, uh, the Center for Maintenance Optimization and Reliability Engineering. And from that, provided them a sample data set uh, from the generation program. And with that, they were able to analyze the data and come up with several methodologies for predictive analytics. Uh, one of them was actually looking at cluster modeling using the comments field within every record that we received. And this helps us provide a, a better prediction model for our failure on generation units. Well, our members will be able to take uh, the predictive analytics models and forecast future outages, uh, when maintenance uh, capital planning programs can be instated, when maintenance planning programs can be instated, plan out their maintenance for the next three, four years, or even greater uh, based on these models. Uh, it'll provide future cost savings uh, when you look at it that way, it's always better to know when your outage is going to occur or have an estimate when it's going to occur than it actually happening when you didn't expect it. Last year, the Service Continuity Group produced an asset health indexing paper, and that looked at the methodologies and the benefits of AHI. And this year, we're going to be looking at economic impact of outages, distribution automation, and delve a little bit more into asset management as well. Uh, right now, our main focus is uh, basically collecting outage data for 2018 and getting ready for our workshop in May, where members will vet the data that we see before us for 2018. Being able to, again, I understand how your system works and how often your outages occur is uh, a key aspect for the distribution performance. Uh, regulators are very interested in how often the customers are impacted, and this provides our members a way to benchmark uh, their data against each other and analyze the system so that they can make improvements uh, where they're needed. Uh, we'll talk about uh, our transmission programs, the equipment side and the bulk electricity system side. 
So for, for those two programs, uh, we operate those two very closely together. Uh, we're looking at the age for equipment, for the equipment reliability. Uh, this will allow our members to uh, better gauge and understand their systems and how they operate. Right now, we don't have that that piece of data that is much needed, and that's basically when the piece of equipment went into work. And with that, our members will be able to identify how old the piece of equipment is and when it will fail. The three programs all together look at reliability from the industry perspective, and these are what I consider the, the backbone of the industry in terms of reliability. I've been involved with uh, reliability for 10 years and I can definitely say that this is a group of people that are committed, hardworking, and work very well together uh, across the country. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions. Our next episode will feature a discussion with Monica Gattinger, the director, the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa, and the chair of Positive Energy. I hope you'll download it and invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.